Season two of the All at Once podcast is presented by Alan and Beth Stanfield of Stanfield Properties, proud sponsors since the podcast's beginning. Contact Alan and Beth Stanfield for all your realty needs. They're the actual best in every way. Whenever he starts feeding into that, of well, you're crazy. Mm -hmm. I started to believe it. Well, maybe this is all in my head because I've seen my brain blow things out of proportion. How you grow again, garden from This is the All at Once podcast for women and those who love them. I'm Kelly Browning. And I'm Sarah McDuffie. We are God's image bearers, exploring ways religion has been distorted to silence the marginalized and to justify abuse. We are Christians seeking to comfort, heal, and free people from the pain caused by our own religion. We carry much, like all of humanity, all at once. To God be the glory. We want you to know that our show is not for little ears. Also, the content we cover may be triggering for those who have experienced trauma. The people we interview present ideas that we align with, and they also present ideas that make us uncomfortable. I invite you to join us in this discomfort as our views, opinions, and experiences are challenged. So, take what is good and beneficial for you and leave what isn't. Here we go. I'm Sarah McDuffie, and today we are interviewing Kelsey Goals, who wrote and published her survivor story, Refuse to Be Silenced, which is available for free online at refusetobesilenced.com. Thank you for having me. So also with us is All at Once producer Kelly Browning. Yes, and I am so excited to be taking a back seat for this episode. Sarah is going to be leading it, and I am just excited to see this magic happen between Kelsey and Sarah. So each season, our goal is to have one episode of a survivor story um, because survivor stories are just really important for shedding light on abuse and how it happens because people just don't really have that inside scoop into like, what, what are the dynamics of abuse and how does it happen to people? But survivor stories really need to be told because other victims and survivors find validation and healing and hope through them. And also because others, helpers in our lives can begin to understand how abuse happens and how to recognize the signs of abuse in people that they love so they can support people through those abusive situations and help protect victims. Kelsey, you have already done the hard work of writing out and sharing your story. Can you tell us about why you chose to do that? Anytime I've gone through anything in life, the good, the bad, the ugly, I've always turned to writing. And my faith is something that has always been extremely important in my life. And writing has really been the way that I felt God has communicated with me. And so whenever I found myself in a situation I never thought I would be in, it only made sense that the healing would come through writing. And so I did not initially start writing thinking I was going to end up with a book. I really did think, okay, If I can get these words out of me, I can process them and deal with them and maybe reflect in a way that I can't just internally because at the time I couldn't even talk about it. It was definitely the most difficult thing I've ever done, but I made the decision to share my story in a way that was accessible to anyone who needed to read it. And so I put it out there. Of course, there was some expected repercussions of that from the people you would expect, but there was also so much beauty that came from it. It was just so worth it because I was able to not just help others who were in abusive relationships, but some people took from it the way that I expressed my, you know, anxiety, depression, like talking through that. And then also my faith walk and and hearing others come to Christ through my story was definitely the most rewarding part of the whole thing. 
there were things that I had not even fully accepted when I started writing, especially like Mm -hmm. the sexual abuse. I had not even come to terms with that until months later. And so of course, none of that was in there initially either. And then there would be things I would start writing, I usually would set a timer, I would give my I would just whatever, I put my phone away and I would set it for an hour, two hours, whatever I had available. And I would just say, just write, whatever you can write, just write. And there would be days where it was 10 minutes. And I'm like, I can't like I have to I have to close this down today. This is too much. And I would come I would revisit the subject later whenever I was fully able to process it. Wow, that's very cool that that you disciplined yourself to do it because you knew that it was going to help you to process it all. One really cool analogy that I liked in your book was the one about the fish in the aquarium. And that one really hit me because it just so descriptively and accurately described the experience of victims of domestic abuse. Can you share that description with us? So I'm just going to read this passage from my book. Um, This was chapter nine. I titled it When We Were Us. Have you ever been to an aquarium? Have you ever seen all of the majestic critters swimming around in giant glass tanks, almost appearing to wave as they pass overhead? All of the oranges and purples and yellows and greens are enclosed within an entirely blue home. And as you watch these little lives swim past you, the beams of light from above reflect off of the water and dance upon your face. It's incredibly serene to be a part of and to watch. But if you think more deeply about what you are witnessing, you may end up taking pity on the animals. They are confined within tiny walls instead of living freely in an immense sea. They are controlled in where they can go and what they can be simply for someone else's entertainment. But then you have to wonder, do they even know what they are missing? Or have they accepted there is no escape? Do they realize the walls are there? Or have they just accepted imprisonment as a way of life? Do they know they are being controlled whenever they are supposed to live freely as creatures of God? Or have they no hope for anything else? And then we must reflect on ourselves, the people who come piling in time after time to look at them. Without us, they would have their freedom, or perhaps never lose it in the first place. But because we keep feeding into what we are told is okay, we ignore what we know in our hearts is not okay. Sometimes we are the ones in a glass cage, restricted by others' expectations for us. We lose hope for a better life, and we lose sight of who we really are. But we feel as though there is nothing we can do to get out. Then sometimes we are the spectators watching it happen when we know it is wrong. So which ones of us will break free? Which ones of us will speak up? That spoke to me very powerfully when I read that because I've had the same experience and Mm -hmm. I was like, that's what it felt like. Mm -hmm. That is what it felt like. When people think of abuse, if they haven't experienced it or if they haven't had a loved one who's experienced it, they typically tend to think of like overtly aggressive behaviors, which definitely happens. Mm -hmm. People don't realize that the underlying factor, the underlying dynamic in that relationship is a control issue. Can you talk about the control factor in your relationship and how that played out? Abuse does not or finding yourself in an abusive relationship typically does not happen overnight. You know, it's there are things that lead up to it that at the time, it's like you you may recognize it as red flags, and you may not but you you choose to ignore them for one reason or another. And so you end up being conditioned until you get to a point where you've been so broken down that suddenly you feel like you're in it too deep. Like I I can't get out this is the way this is the way my life is going to be really with with my situation with my abuser, he was someone I, I loved. He was someone I trusted. He was he was not an attractive guy. I mean, I really did when I met him. He was not very cute, but I thought he had 
the most beautiful heart. And so that's what I think I held on to too, is this is, I didn't choose the, I didn't choose the typical arrogant guy. Just over time, I just started to see things break down. In the beginning, some of those things were getting upset for me not being available when he was available or lying about things to me that didn't and shouldn't have mattered. Like my family spending time with them, texting anybody, like all those things just started to break down. Me, me working out, like I lost a bunch of weight at one point, like 20 pounds. And it wasn't until I lost the weight, you know, he started like hitting my stomach and being like, oh, you little, my little chunky monkey. So it's just like anytime that I seem to get confidence or if I ever got attention from another guy, it would infuriate him. And then he would try to find a way to start to break me down, but without me entirely realizing that. But it also came down to a lot of gaslighting, which was he would do something and then say he didn't. And he would yell and I would be locked in my bathroom for two hours in a ball on the floor crying. And I would come out and he would say, now, why did you make me do that? Or then the next morning it would be, well, I was never arguing. That was never, that never happened. Yeah. So then you start to question your own sanity. And and me, someone who is medicated for anxiety and depression, sometimes that is a struggle for me is, is figuring out what is logical and what is my anxiety. Whenever he starts feeding into that, of well, you're crazy. Mm-hmm. I started to believe it. Well, maybe this is all in my head because I've seen my brain blow things out of proportion in the past. Yeah. I am so sorry that that happened to you. It's it's a very confusing and disorienting thing. And to have that feeling that you cannot trust yourself mm-hmm. and your own perception of reality is a terrible feeling to have. I'm just so sorry that you experienced that. Thank you. Well, and that was another thing that I, I say this to people a lot is the whole the whole situation that I went through. One of the things that was the biggest struggle for me coming out of it was not just not being able to trust men. It was, I no longer trust myself. Mm -hmm. I no longer trust my judgment because here I was, I thought I picked the good guy and I was so wrong. You described your ex as wearing a mask. Yes. Can you talk about what that was like? So I have called my anxiety, my dark monster for quite some time. And interesting enough, he also obtained that nickname from me in my mind. He was also my dark monster. And I, again, he was this, he was the nice guy. Everyone seemed to love him. And that's what drew me towards him in the first place. That's where I say he was wearing a mask. He was, he was putting on one face in the public and we would come back and behind closed doors, he was a completely different person, which only adds to you as a victim, not feeling secure in in coming out and sharing your story, because what you're about to tell people does not align at all with the way they view this person. Right. So it it just adds to that element of and and being told that, well, no one's ever going to believe you because they know what they're doing. They know the perception they're creating with everybody else. And they know how how vastly different who they truly are is whenever they get to a place where not everyone's watching, where the eyes aren't on them. So that's where I said, like with the mask, he was a different person when I first started dating him. That's what I said. You never you never date the guy that is bad to you in the first place. You date the guy who's who's sweet to you, who who goes out of his way, who who sweeps you off your feet. And once he has you in a place that he feels comfortable, that's when the true person comes out. And that's exactly what happened. Unfortunately, that's very common too, where like in in my experience, it was after I was married. And it was like either a few weeks or a couple of months after I was married that I started to go, okay, there's been a shift. 
Mm-hmm. There's been a shift in the way this is going. Mm-hmm. I'm not treated well. I, like I noticed these things and I started mm-hmm. reaching out for help and I had that feeling that it, it's too late mm-hmm. and no one will believe me because he comes across as a completely different person to everyone outside of our house. Totally. And I think something like you talking about marriage and I've, I've said so many times, thank God, you know, we, mm-hmm. I had never ended up marrying him because I know it's so much harder to get out of a situation when you're married to somebody. But I think that's important to talk about too, is not just the perception they've created for their life, but the perception we've also tried to create. Like I know for me, it was this, okay, I have this happy life. I had, I put so much of my relationship on social media. And one thing that I thought he did for me, which was, you know, at the time I had said, I'm one thing that's super important to me is waiting um, until marriage. And he had been in full support of that seemingly in the beginning. And when he gave me a promise ring that really solidified that he was in that with me. And it also pretty much said, this is, this is the person I'm going to marry. And so whenever I've put that out there and everyone was so supportive, I think it added an additional pressure of everyone expects this to work out. Everyone sees this as a happy relationship. So whenever things started to break down, it made it harder because I felt like, oh my gosh, people are just not going to see this coming, but I didn't see it coming. And it's, I'm a failure. Yes. This failed. This relationship yeah. failed. Yeah. And like I'm I've always been a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. I'm the I was the child who cried over missing one question on a test. Like I that was me. And so I think I saw the entire breakdown of the relationship as a complete and utter failure. And that was something that I wasn't ready to accept and I didn't want others to see weakness. So that made it really and instead of seeing getting out as strength at the time it was well, you've allowed this to go on yeah. at so long at this point that how are people going to look at you differently? And again, are people even going to believe you and, and what's going to be the perspective? It's all about that. Mm-hmm. How are people going to see me? How are people going to see him? What's he going to do? You know, there's all these questions to where it just makes it hard to get out. So right. you're more, you just become more complacent with my life isn't going to be good. Well, and then also like you talked about, like it was important to you to wait until marriage mm-hmm. and he acted like he was going along with that. But then at one point he didn't anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The the way that they kind of set that up is that in some respect, they kind of feel comfortable with the fact that you're going to stick around because you kind of feel obligated to at that point. Yes. Once you had gone there with him, I'm sure that, I mean, I know for me that that's what that would have felt like for me. Like I'm in this. Yes. I have to stick with this now. Yes. So it's this this double whammy of we've set up this social expectation that our our relationship is good and wonderful. And if I just suddenly end it out of the blue now, I'm going to look crazy. But also, I feel kind of morally obligated to make this work. Absolutely. And you you just as a human, like take take morals out of it. Mm-hmm. We get we, we make expectations for ourselves all the time. And so you start to get a picture of what your life is going to be like. And it's hard to veer from that. Yeah, so for sure, you you get married, you think this is that when you made that vow, this is the person, mm-hmm. this is the person I will spend the rest of my life with. Otherwise, you wouldn't have agreed mm-hmm. to, to marry them. And so mm-hmm. it's you when you feel like, oh, my goodness, you see that crashing down. Yeah, it's awful. Yeah. You know? So let's talk about red flags. Okay early on in the relationship, because I know when I was reading your book, I, I noticed that you kind of noticed some red flags. I, I did the same thing. Like there were red flags and we kind of noticed them, totally. but we justified them or just totally pretended like, it. you know, this was a one time thing or this wasn't that bad or mm-hmm. he's maturing. He'll grow out of this. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that you 
ignored those red flags or thought of them as not being that big of a deal? For me, I've always had a very forgiving heart. And one thing that I feel like I've been taught in my faith walk is, you know, you're to forgive others. And I think at the time, I didn't know the difference between being able to forgive and walk away and and that forgiveness like that I thought if if I truly forgave him, I had to stay. That's that was true forgiveness, not that I could still forgive and and remove myself from a situation, but yeah. as far as red flags, I mean, early on, the way he spoke of his ex-girlfriend, red flag. Yeah. Called her crazy. I'm like, okay, so if you're saying that about another girl, what does that mean you're going to say about me one day, which I can only imagine. His grandma had actually said something to me where she made a comment to him or he told me about his grandma telling him, "Don't mess this up." Yeah. And I thought that was unusual because why are you warning him about that? Why has there been past behaviors that have shown you that? One thing too is as far as the the physical, the sexual abuse that ended up occurring later. Again, I had hard boundaries. My parents always had rules when we were growing up. Mm -hmm. Boys did not go in the bedrooms. We had a curfew of 11 o'clock. You were not allowed to go into a boy's house without his parents being there. Mm -hmm. And I always respected rules because to me, I was, I was always a rule follower. So when I got to college, I still had the same rules really for myself. And I remember him, this was early into dating him staying over. One night he said he fell asleep and I tried to wake him up and I'm like, um, you fell asleep. This is not supposed, you're not supposed to be in my bed. You're not supposed to be staying with me. Yeah. And it got brushed off. Well, it happened again and it kept happening again. So then (laughs) all these other things that I wasn't comfortable with that I had never, ever done was not comfortable doing started to happen. I started to be touched places. I didn't want to be touched. I started to be asked to touch him places. I didn't want to touch. And it just starts to push that line further and further to where it's like he started to be more like well it's this has already happened this has already happened so it never was like thing that I was comfortable with but it became more about well he gets angry and he treats me nicer whenever I just do what he says Mm -hmm. so and that sounds so weak and I know it sounds so weak but that's kind of the point that I had gotten to I don't think it's weak I think it's something that happens to us it's it's a normal response to that kind of manipulation I think Mm -hmm. of course we're going to to if if subconsciously we know that we're going to be treated better if we behave a certain way and we're going to be treated worse if we behave a different sort of way it's normal to to make those adjustments Mm -hmm. I think that's a normal response it's a confusing thing to sort out there is a myth that abuse only happens to weak people. Mm-hmm. And there has been a lot of conflict and gaslighting in my family because they cannot accept that I was abused because I am strong. So therefore I am a liar. It mm-hmm. didn't happen. When the opposite is true, abuse happens to everyone. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that the people who are being abused who aren't going away are also strong. They just haven't ha- found that strength yet. And that's what we hope to do mm-hmm. by you sharing your story is to help more women and men who are in abusive situations to find that strength and to mm-hmm. reverse that lie that says, this is happening to me because I'm weak. Mm-hmm. No, you are strong and you need to find that strength within you, mm-hmm. just like you did. You know, even if... if- you're someone who's in an abusive situation and you haven't found it within you or you haven't found an opportunity to speak up or to get out or whatever you need to do, that doesn't mean that you are not strong. It means you are in a drowning situation. Mm -hmm. You are being strong every day. You're surviving every day. And it is a tough place to be. And it takes Oh, those first steps are so hard Mm -hmm. to get out of that. Well, I know there was a point, again, I do a lot of writing. So I started every 
chapter with a poem um, that some of them were already written beforehand and some I wrote specifically for the book. But I would write a lot in class the year, uh, my last year of college after I had gotten out of the relationship and I would just process again, some more things that way. And it's really interesting. I have those journals still to go back and kind of read the ups and downs. But I know like something you just said reminded me, I remember writing a piece about the abuse and feeling like I was drowning. I would compare it to that a lot. In fact, I think I have a a chapter titled to drowning where this person you think is supposed to be like your, your life preserver. And instead they're acting more like cinder cinder blocks tied to your ankles. Yeah. And that's a really hard, and, and if you can't see it, it's hard to recognize that. And it's like when you finally are the one to, to step out, to cut those ties, to get out of the water, to, to stop drowning, you'll look back and you'll realize it was the person abusing you who's the one who's been drowning the whole time. Mm-hmm. Because happy people do not hurt others. That's true. Let's talk about some of those behaviors that started out subtly in your relationship and then just kind of progressively got worse. Again, it doesn't happen overnight. It's it's usually slow and, and drawn out. I've always been pretty confrontational. Like if I have an issue with anybody, like I will go up to you and I'll ask you, like, let's let's resolve it right now. Like I, I'm not one to beat around the bush. Like I don't like conflict. I just want to I want it to be resolved. And so with him initially, like I think I had more of that approach, but it was just like over time, you just start to see things where I'm not feeling very good about myself anymore. And and I I feel like like there was a time I turned the music up too loudly in the car mm-hmm. and it led to just an explosive mm-hmm. argument. And something I noticed was, again, I've always had that voice. I've always, I've always been pretty strong. And when I took a moment to look back on everything, I realized I wasn't talking. I wasn't writing. Whenever things were happening, I was just letting it happen. So I realized in that I was losing myself. I wasn't writing through my emotions like I had before. In fact, I think I had written one poem the entire time I was with him, which is very unlike me. But it's those things where you're like, I was losing sight of myself. I had some friendships that kind of fizzled just because of isolation. Like there, there are things that, that happen where you're thinking, okay, you are supposed to be my priority. And so now everything else has to take a back seat, including my own health. And that's just a hard thing to come to terms with and really to recognize in the time and in the moment, just because it's like, you don't want it to be true. You don't want to be in that situation. I never wanted to be the girl in an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. And that was something that was so interesting when I did release my story was I had so many people comment that I never would have thought you would be in an abusive relationship. And it's like, well, what is a victim supposed to look like? Really? It comes down to, you can be the most confident person. I think my entire life I was built up. I was given so much power by my parents and to, to know I could do anything. I could be anybody. I never felt less than I never felt like I couldn't do something. And I was that person. And I still ended up in this relationship. It's because over time they break you down, like who you are, your interests and, and really just that that self-esteem to where it's it becomes where you're more like well do I deserve this is this happening and it's not totally crazy that anyone can be an abuser because they're they're everywhere and if you just look at statistics it's Mm -hmm. like you know somebody yes you know a man you know someone who's been a victim you know somebody who's been an abuser it may be that friend it may be your dad it may be you never know I think, you know, that's something we've, we've really got to unpack and talk about is that that non, non-physical abuse is very real and very damaging. You're, you're kind of groomed totally to accept more and more mistreatment until the really bad stuff starts to happen. Mm-hmm. And you feel like at that point, you don't have a voice to speak up yeah. and you, you can't do anything about it anymore. And I would say like arguably 
all things that are are bad happen outside of Christ. And so for me, all of the bad, the evil that was happening, that is that was not that was not Christ. And the only reason I got through everything that I got through was because of Christ. I think that really one thing, in fact, leading up to me knowing I have to get out of this was I came home walked into church the sermon and and the song playing even was all it I just knew God was talking to me and it, it I felt like that truly is what empowered me to get out and when I looked back on those situations when I was able to reflect it was I felt alone during through so much of the abuse but I was never alone it was because he had distanced me from God, just like he had everybody else. And so I wasn't able to see that when I was on the bathroom floor, God was there. Whenever I was being yelled at and crying in, in bed as things were happening, yeah. God was there. He was holding me. And and the evil that was, was happening wasn't because of God, but in spite of him. I have to give complete credit to to my faith because I don't think I would have survived the situation without it. Though I had a different experience with the Christian community that was around me and how they respond to me reaching out for help where like non-physical abuse was not considered like valid abuse. That was coming from people. What became clear to me through my relationship with God was that God saw what was happening and God saw my distress and he cared. Even if the church was failing in this area for me in that moment, God still saw and he still cared. And ultimately, I had the same experience and the same feelings and the same knowledge that, you know, what God wanted for me was not to continue to be abused. Yes. Yes. Um, I actually heard this sermon. We did a whole series recently and it really stood out to me. So there was, I've always thought of every single thing in the Bible, everything makes sense, except there's one thing that kind of has always felt a little like, why did he say that? Was when Christ was, was crucified and he says, father, why have you forsaken me? And I thought that just seems, who am I to question God? But that seems out of character. And as we were going through this series, one thing that was commented on by our pastor was that is because in that moment, moment Christ took on the sin of the world and God cannot be in the presence of sin. So like where there is evil and and people, we are flawed. So like my abuser is flawed. Do I still think he is absolutely redeemable? I do. Mm -hmm. And I I think there's beauty in that because I don't think there's one person as hard as it is for, for us to accept that. And I think that was one thing that was so healing for me. And that also came from a sermon was pray for those who have hurt you. I literally could not say the prayer. And finally over time I said it and I didn't really mean it. And I kept doing it. And eventually I meant it. And I was praying every day for him and for his his new girlfriend who yeah. eventually became his wife mm-hmm. and i still think of her and i still pray for her wow. pretty frequently and for him and so i remember laying there and i would just i was not sleeping i was just crying all night I would have such bad anxiety and i just prayed like god just please like i just need to i just need to feel you in that moment i literally felt like i was wrapped mm-hmm. in in his arms i just felt it and it's like in those moments of peace where it was just pure peace in fact brie and i um my best friend and i had gone to um galveston one night this was right after all of that happened um with getting out of the relationship and finally talking to my parents to her to my sister about everything a little more a little more detailed still not fully one of the things we would do in high school school was we would just drive down to Galveston, go to the beach sometimes. Sometimes just for the drive, we would literally get there and turn around. And it was usually had the music up, jamming out. And so we did that because she knew my best friend is struggling and <laughs> and I was. So we needed just a happy, a happy moment. So we got in the car, rolled the windows down, headed down 45 and blasted music. And we're singing like sound like I'm sure nails on a chalkboard but we got down there and it was dark already and we parked on the beach and I said I really had been praying just God please give me peace please give me peace for for pretty much every day since I got out of that relationship in that moment I just felt nothing 
but peace. And I knew that was a gift. I felt him in the stars. I felt him in the ocean. I felt him sitting in the sand next to me. It was still, there were still hard days ahead, but I held on to that. God is with you. That's powerful. So one thing that you kind of touched on was how your um, abusive ex, his relationship with you started to kind of change your relationship with God. Mm-hmm. and how you viewed yourself and how you viewed your relationship with God. And I experienced that exactly. Like, that's what I would say. That was the hardest thing about what I went through as part of that um, emotional, psychological manipulation was that it changed how I viewed myself in relationship to God. And it changed how I viewed God. Can you talk a little bit about the, the changes that you noticed in yourself and the changes you noticed in how you viewed yourself and God and all of that and how that play, played out in your relationship. Oh, yeah. So I feel like I've always had so much confidence in who I am. Not necessarily, I mean, I have insecurities, believe me, like any woman, especially, but I've always been so firm in this is who I am. And it's because of Christ. Like I know who I am. I know what I stand for. I know where I'm going and I'm good with that. So when the relationship started, he was not actively going to church and I was, and I said that was something that was important to me. I said I would never date a non-Christian. And so he told me he was, but he really didn't have a relationship with Christ. Like he said, he, he was a believer, but he didn't really have a relationship with Christ, but he wanted to. And he thought that maybe I had been put in his path to, to help encourage him, which is really what I, I didn't want. I wanted somebody to be able to push me in my faith, just like I have always pushed others in theirs. And so um, he started going to church with me. And I loved that and and started praying with me, which oh my gosh, like again, I'm, I'm like, okay, we're on a roll. This is what I this is what I've been wanting. And then it was he it was like he got comfortable. Mm-hmm. And again, like all the other things he was doing that were nice for me. Once he got comfortable, he stopped doing the things he didn't actually want to do. And one of those things was pursuing a relationship with Christ. So not only did he stop praying and going to church and really wanting to talk about God, because I love talking about God. I love having conversations about God. It was he, he wanted me to stop doing those things too. Hmm. So again, if I went to church on Sunday without him, cause he didn't want to go, well, that was time away from him and he didn't like that. And, and just any kind of prayer would be a lot of times a cry for help. Well, there's no reason to ask for help. Like we're, we're good. I just started to become more and more distant from God. Once that started, it was, it was really tough to get back into really my sense of security because that was, that was what my faith provided for me and, and like knowing who I am. And so I think I had a lot of question marks of like, first of all, I was, I was about to graduate too. That was coming up. And so there were already a lot of question marks in life of who am I? Where am I going? What am I going to do? And, um, just to, to, feel like maybe he was one answer of like, this is the person you're going to end up with. And then not really liking that answer. Mm. The biggest red flag that put me over the edge was my mom had my, both of my parents had come up to Wichita Falls to visit me. And I thought they were just coming for the weekend. And my mom surprised me and said she was going to be staying for the week. And I was so excited. And then we were going to leave the next weekend and I was going to ride home with my mom. And that week turned out to be an absolute hell for me in my relationship because he could not stand that my mom was getting my time. Mm. So that was like, really, (laughs) I was like, there's no denying how bad this is anymore. And he would be sitting in the same room 
as us. Yeah. Like I, we were trying to watch like The Bachelor, right. you know, like something clearly he's not interested in, but of course he had to be there and sending me just hateful messages from across the room when my mom's sitting right there. And so I think I knew like at that point, okay, this is really not good. And I got home and I was around my family and I was around my friends. And I think it helped me see this is love. Yeah. And what I'm going through back there, that is not. And really in, in my belief, God is love. Like God is the ultimate love. And so for me to be able to connect and go into church and have have that feeling of he's speaking to me right now. Yeah. I think that's really what opened my eyes to this is what a loving relationship is like. And this is the, what you're in right now is not that. Yeah. And so that's what really kind of empowered me and not, not just that, but to know I am away. Mm. I'm physically away. I'm 400 miles away from this man. I feel safer. And then ultimately with the whole ending of the relationship, it was finding the out to make him feel like it was his decision and that he was the one in control in order to maybe make it a better, smoother out for me. Tell us about the first overtly abusive episode. What was going through your mind and what was your reaction in that moment? I had just been asked to write an article for my school newspaper about what it's like to be a Christian in college. And in that uh, article, I specifically wrote on waiting uh, for marriage Mm -hmm. and that I was so lucky to have a man who was supportive of that. Well, I think he'd probably been telling his friends something different. And Mm -hmm. so when that came out, I think it really upset him. So that night we got back to my apartment. I was brushing my teeth, taking my makeup off for the day. And I had just said, you know, I really want to just kind of get out of this rut we're in. Like, again, I'm looking for a solution because I know things aren't bad and I want to blame it on other things, right? But I asked, you know, maybe if it's just us going for a a drive or like going out to eat instead of just ordering in every day or like just something where maybe we're, I just wanted a connection. Like I just wanted to get back to like why I I fell in love with this man in the first place. It enraged him Mm -hmm. because I guess to him it was what's going on right now is not enough for you. And so he just started yelling you, you bitch, you bitch over and Mm -hmm. over. And it was like, I literally in that moment saw a different person Mm -hmm. and that just started a string of insults and just, it was awful. And I remember sitting there because at that point I had come to sit next to him on the edge of my bed when I was having, when I struck up this conversation and he had stood up and he was standing in the doorway and it was just like his, I've never seen rage like that on another person's face. And I just sat there and I'm like, am I, is this happening? Like, is this is, I don't recognize this person. And I didn't say a word. And he went through his whole thing of yelling and and throwing things. And he left and he ultimately ended it right then. I'm done. You, You bitch, I'm done. He walked out of the door and I sat there for a minute and then I got up and I was shaking Mm-hmm. And I went and I locked the door. And I remember because I was I was scared. Right. And um, immediately called my best friend. I remember I couldn't even speak. Like yeah. I literally couldn't even speak. I, I didn't know how to put into words what had just happened. Finally was able to kind of muffle it up. But I don't think I even fully came to terms with it that night. Like I don't think I fully realized like what, what just happened. Cause I feel like I had truly lost the idea at least of someone that I had loved. Yeah. 
And so I felt like he was gone. And I, I knew like in that moment, I don't think I'm, I'm ever going to see him the same way because he just got so ugly in the things he said and just the insults. And mm-hmm. it, it had already like started to happen. Like there were already some little comments here and there that had, had torn me down leading up to that. But that moment was like, here we go. Here's here's the lighter to the fireworks. You know, that is not love. That is not not love at all. How did that change the dynamics of your relationship going forward? Having experienced that fear mm. and knowing how far his anger could go the next day he wanted to meet up and talk about everything that had happened and in his mind it was a moment of weakness in him and in my mind I was like I don't know what the hell just happened like I don't I don't know how I'm ever gonna see you the same way at that point I had I thought that was it I thought I'm never seeing this man again and I had shared with Bree and I had shared with my mom and I had shared with my sister and they were they were all very honest with me. And even my dad, I remember my dad saying, of all the years I've been married to your mom, I have never spoken to her mm-hmm. that way. And we've gotten mad and I have never spoken to her that way. Yeah. So I I think just trying to make sense of it all, I still had a conversation with with him. It still didn't add up and it still, it, it seemed like he, he really was sorry, but it, it didn't, it just, I saw him completely differently in that moment. And then a couple days, I think it was literally four days went by and I was trying to make it work and essentially he was like it's been enough time like you need to get over it Mm. and I think that's what really started to to make me feel like okay like even though everybody else is telling me nope nope be done with this guy like this is not a good sign at all I loved him yeah. And I was still hanging on to all of the good because there was a lot of good. And I think that's something that maybe we don't talk about a ton, but it's not all bad. Like right. th- there were so many beautiful memories with him. Yeah. Now, was it actually him or was it the version he was presenting? Right. You know, that's a different question. Mm-hmm. But there were things that I cherished. And I think I had in my mind created what our life was going to be. And so to see that all crashing, it was something I wasn't ready to let go of. And so we got back together and it was probably a week, I believe, maybe two that the next incident occurred and it was shortly thereafter that the sexual abuse really started. It's crazy how it like escalates once it's happened. It's like once the secret's out, once once you know what they're really like, it's it just escalates from there. And it's very scary. It's a scary thing. And I'm again, I'm just so sorry. I, it's hard to even say the word rape, you know? Yeah. So Kelsey, a couple of themes that I saw in your story that were so similar to my experience were the themes of pressure Mm -hmm. to do what he wanted. And that can kind of take the form of like either coercion or manipulation. So both of those things I experienced as well. So for me, there was a lot of pressure on a daily basis just to go along and to do what he wanted to do or accept things that I was uncomfortable with that he wanted from me. And... Along with that, there was also pressure, like you experienced, to get over abusive episodes quickly, um, to quickly forgive. Can you talk first about that, that you would experience experience an, an overt abusive episode, and then it was like there was this expectation that you only get a certain amount of time to like have feelings about this, and then you need to be over it. When I got out, um, or whenever he broke up with me that first night when he had that whole explosion, and then we ended up getting back together, it was it was astonishing to me how quickly he wanted to move on from it as if it wasn't a big deal. Well, for me, it was a very big deal. Like I I was so taken aback. I felt like I'd been I felt like I'd been in a fight, you know, like a physical fight, but it was it was on my heart. And I was not 
I was not able to get over it and not upset him. It upset him that I wasn't able to make things just go right back to normal. Well, things were never going to be back to normal after that. And I think part of me telling my mom, telling my best friend, telling my dad, telling my sister and having literally all of them say, this isn't good. I mean, we love you. We support you no matter what, but we do not think you should be with him. So for them to say that, I think when I did decide to get back with him, And when the abuse did end up continuing, it was harder to share Mm. in the future because it felt like, well, they were right. And I'm the idiot here, you know? Anyway, we go through this whole process of months of, of abuse and again, escalation. And, And I think there would be nights where I would be violated literally in tears, just looking at the wall while it was happening. I would wake up the next morning and he would be great. And he would be nice and he would make me breakfast or he would do something kind, you know, for me. And so it was hard to decipher who he was, um, what his true intentions were, if things actually happened, because he would he would tell me that didn't happen. Mm. That did not happen. I didn't say that. And so I started and I actually had it and it was very helpful for my book. So I started writing down the things that he would say, the things he would call me just almost to, to have the validation for myself of this is this is happening. This is not good. When we did finally end it supposedly for good. I spent three months really cutting off all communication. I had blocked him on everything. I I said, I will never speak to this person again. And then we had a crazy kind of turn of events. And part of me thinking I had to forgive him was unblocking him. And I felt like if I unblocked him, that meant I was going to move on from it. And I didn't think he was ever going to contact me again, or at least I was telling myself that. Well, we had, so he was on the football team. There was a player who was killed during a game. He got hit, it snapped his neck, and he died on the field. And when that happened, my abuser reached out to me mm-hmm. again. And I am—I have a really big heart and a need to fix. And I think no matter how much pain he had caused me, I knew how bad he was hurting in that situation. And that's when he asked to meet up again. And I did. And sure enough, the same actions went on for about another week. What actions that week? So we had, we had met up and he wanted to talk and he, I think for me, I saw meeting up with him as a way that I would finally get to confront him. This is what you did. I want to hear you say it. I want to hear, he never apologized for anything. So I wanted to, I think I felt like I needed an apology. So we met at this park. I asked for a public place because I did not feel secure meeting with him privately. He walked up and I remember he tried to give me a hug. Again, act like things were fine and normal. And it was just so bizarre for me like this is I I don't feel good about you I I haven't felt good about you I've realized in the last three months kind of some of the things you've been doing but I sat down and I had a conversation and he just started with well how have you been you know and we started to talk and we eventually got on the the fellow football player and then I was actually able to sit and say what you did was abusive the things you said and I and I listed and you know some of those things were you're you're fat you're ugly you're worthless you're stupid you're crazy I was able to say like this is what you said this is abusive I've talked through it and this was not okay and he was like you're right it wasn't wasn't okay and apologized and said he was um he had worked a lot on himself he started going to church that he was not that same man over the course of the next week I had heard this is ultimately how we, how I found my out was, I think the only way I could ever feel loved by him was by doing what he wanted. And I knew what he wanted was sexual. I didn't want him to hurt. And so we had a night where I met with him. It was like three in the morning 
and had gone to a park and was sitting out there and I just was crying. And I was like, I just don't know how to look at you. And, and he was just like, it's okay. And just like started kissing me. And anyway, found out literally it was the next day he was with somebody else. It just was, I think really the last thing that I needed though, to solidify, like, this is, this is it. This is, this is the end of the rope. He is not going to change. He's, I don't know why I ever, other than I had initially met with him, I think for the apology to confront him. And I realized he just did something to me where like, I, I did not feel in control ever with him. Like I felt like every time I was around this man, I turned into, I I lost myself again. And so I knew no more, no more talking, no more chances. An apology from him means nothing and I don't need it anymore. Mm -hmm. And so that was really kind of the ultimate end all of the relationship. And then the fallout from that was pretty substantial, you know, of and, and him being on the football team, the captain of the football team definitely made a difference as far as the power imbalance, because he was a star, he was plastered all over all of their marketing materials. And he had a whole team of guys that when you break up with a, a an athlete, you're not just breaking up with the one person you're breaking up with the team. And I definitely felt that and I, yeah, I had I had football players banging on my door in the middle of the night, I would walk into our student center, I would um, have guys call me terrible names or, or I had people sending him where I was. He would show up at soccer games that I was at. And it was just a, a few months, even though he was with somebody else, it was like he could not stand that he no longer had control over me. And, and that drove him absolutely insane. No, it's basically been ended by abuse. Like it's falling apart. You're pulling away because you're being abused and they, they play with your emotions and make you feel responsible or obligated to stay in the relationship or to take care of their feelings or whatever. Um, But that's a form of manipulation. Oh, yeah. Well, and I think really one of the most dangerous times is after you get out of an abusive relationship because they feel like the loss of control, you know, and even before I, I released my book, like I had I had put it out there that it was coming not anything specific, but that I I had been working very hard and this was about to be out there. And again, I changed his name, which I didn't even have to do, Mm -hmm. to be honest. Um, but I changed his name because I did not want to make it about him. I wanted to make it about helping others to not feel alone like I did. And, um, I mean, even in those moments, he couldn't contact me because at that point I had reblocked and made sure, but was sending messages through his friends. I was getting threats from his friends. I was getting threats from the other football players. And, um, but that was, it ended up being one of the most empowering moments for me was when I was able to, to fight back and, um, send him one final message before I released the book, which was pretty much, this is what's happening. You're going to realize that you are an abuser and you are a rapist, and you're going to be held accountable for that, and you have to live with it. I will no longer be voiceless, and once you have read this message, I am blocking you again, and you are going to be the one without the voice, mm. and that was my final, my final thing. I'm like, there's, wow. I'm like, you know, I studied journalism. Like, one thing I think you've forgotten is I keep proof of everything I write about, Yeah. so don't try me. Good. <laughs> and I really awesome. didn't like I knew because that but that was the moment where I was able in my mind to take back the power I'm done with the threats mm-hmm. like I've been getting them I had I felt like ignoring them was was not giving in so that he wanted a reaction from me very clearly for months I mean and then I got home 
And again, I'm 400 miles away and I'm still getting messages. I'm, I'm still getting threats. I was done. I was done and I knew they were empty and I was going to show him you're no longer in control of me mm-hmm. and this is what you are. And I'm recognizing that now. Yeah. I loved what your mom said to you and what she wrote to you in that letter. And I just wanted to know if you would share that with us. So this is what she wrote. Let me start off by saying, I love you. And I appreciate you sharing with me what you are going through. As you know, I am sometimes a knee jerk reaction person until I have had some alone time to ingest and put my thoughts in order. Needless to say, after not sleeping well, waking up and going through my thoughts and what we discussed, I think you should heed caution. Again, I completely understand you having a gamut of emotions running through you, especially after your discussions with Cameron. I know you are a smart, beautiful, loving person, and you don't want to hurt anyone, but you must take care of you first. You are the most important, and protecting you should come first. You can't worry about other people because you have to be in a good place with yourself before you can be in a good place for anyone else. Again, I totally understand having feelings. After all, you guys were promised. Like I said, I was in your situation. However, Jeff never abused me. After what you said, I think Cameron is sincere with his feelings and emotions. However, I am leery because a manipulator works that way. Has he really changed? Has he learned to control his anger? He was embarrassed when he saw you doing well during the summer. Therefore, as in the past, he lashed out and cut you down in a text message. Then, once he sees your tweet about being depressed, he contacts you. This time, though, with, I'm here for you. Again, I would be cautious. Wolves do not go after the strong. They prey on the weak. Now, I do agree it was a good idea to finally talk since you ended a long-term relationship through a text. Yes, I know he still loves you and you still have mixed feelings about him, but you have to think about you. Now, here's where I have to be brutally honest with you. I knew you would probably suffer depression once your coaching came to an end. You seem to do, you seem to do this when you realize you will not be busy filling every minute of your day with something or someone. I know you love yourself, but I don't think you are comfortable with yourself. Does that make sense? Like you are afraid to be alone. I don't know why other than you've always had someone, your sister, since conception. I don't know why because you are a beautiful soul and you should love being with such a wonderful you. I think you need to find you and being with you before you get into a relationship, whether it's with Cameron or someone else. Another thing I would challenge you to do is read up on abusive behavior and the cycles. I read a good article on psychological manipulation, and there are many, many other articles and information out there. I love you, my beautiful, smart, and kind girl. You are precious to me. I will be by your side no matter what. I think the thing with that letter that was so amazing, other than my mom just being literally the most amazing person, is she gave me the freedom of choice. And that was something I think throughout my abusive relationship, I never felt that I had. And so it's like whenever you're a teenager and your mom tells you not to do something, you just want to do it even more. So for her to literally say, despite her actual feelings of no, 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 I don't think you should do this, for her to say, I will stand by your side no matter what was just incredible. And for her to still recognize in that letter that there was abuse that had occurred and that I loved her line of wolves don't prey on the strong, they, they prey on the weak. And I was in a really low place. I was dealing with depression after getting out of that. Like I said, I'd been, I hadn't been sleeping. I uh, had lost a ton of weight from not eating. And it was just a really tough time. And so for her to be able to sit there and say, he saw you vulnerable. And that's when he reached out. If you're a parent um, of older kids who might be in dating relationships, 
go ahead and copy and paste that letter from mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> Kelsey's website so you can just refer back to that so you can model your own communication with your kids after it because it's powerful and I'm, I'm a little bit envious of, of that response from your mom. Not a little bit, a lot bit. One thing that was so awesome too that was separate from the letter but kind of hand in hand was I had gone home one weekend. I, I did it out of the blue, kind of on a whim. I was so upset. I was crying. Went back to my safety, to my parents. She said, you know, we love having you home, but I think the reason why is, is you're running and you are living right now in a way that you are, you are afraid constantly. And as long as you live your life in fear, he will still have control over you. And when she said that to me, it completely changed how that year went because I think it easily could have been one of the worst years of my entire life. Instead, it was one of the best. And I really felt like I started to see life differently and I started to see it as almost like a second chance. Like this was this was a beautiful gift that I'd been given that I got out and that I had the most amazing people around me And I was just going to go make memories. And I'd already been through things that sucked. So stop living with fear. So I did think I went, I hiked, I've hiked the Grand Canyon. I've gone skydiving. I've lived life in a completely different way than I ever did before that relationship. And so I think that's one thing that's so cool is as awful as it was in the moment, there has been so much beauty to come from that situation. Okay, I want to ask you about what it's like now. The abuser is gone. The abuse is over. You've started a new chapter of life. In my experience, there's still kind of a battle to be fought. Is that your experience as well? Totally. So it's, I mean, really right after was the hardest, Mm -hmm. harder than during. And it was because I had to confront everything that happened. And that was really tough. I had to come to terms with it. And I think it was easy for me before to say, oh, this isn't really happening or, oh, this isn't that bad. But then when I started talking about it or started writing about it, it became just blatantly obvious that it was really bad. Of course, over time, you know, certain things get easier, but there's always stuff that comes up. And I mean, even just knowing I was going to be coming on this podcast today and discussing these things that I haven't really discussed in depth in a while. I mean, I I had a special visitor in my dreams the last five nights Mm -hmm. and I still have, I I think getting, I got married this year and thank you to a wonderful man. I think as, as great as the relationship is, and there has still been so many challenges, I think that I've brought, I mean, he, he has his own things too, but that I've brought from my past situation of having a hard time knowing there is no out, you know, getting married was, it seemed really solid. And even though this is a really good man, you lose a sense of freedom, which can be really terrifying. And so just working through some of that. And then of course, like intimacy and, and things that I maybe didn't have to, to deal with or think about as much before. There are days that that are that are harder and there are days that are that are fine and so I think there are definitely going to be moments throughout my life that bring up this experience and some ways it's going to be a positive reflection back on how far I've come and in other ways it's going to be a struggle of dealing with it because I don't think you ever can fully fully get over it but I think for me being able to forgive was a huge step in the healing process. And I think as much as people might say, well, don't you just wish him the worst? I just say, I honestly don't think about him at all. Hardly. Like, I really don't. I don't know if he's good. I don't know if he's bad. And I don't care to know. Yeah. I'm just... I'm embracing the life that I've been given, what I feel is the second chance I've been given, loving all of the good that is around me. And I am surrounded by some amazing people. Kelsey, thank you so much for sharing your story and your voice with us. Stories like this help us to understand abuse as a community, as a society. And it also helps victims and survivors to know that they are not alone 
that there is hope and healing beyond the abuse that they're experiencing or have experienced. So thank you so much for being brave enough to come here and to talk with us and to share your story like this. Well, thank you for having me. I, like I said, the reason I released my book was to be able to help others. And this is just another platform for me to be able to do so. So thank you. Thank you, Kelsey. You are strong and you are healing. And we are very thankful for you and your willingness to speak today. Thank you. Before you go, if you like what you hear, please consider contributing to our podcast via Patreon, which is a monthly giving platform for creators like us. Visit the show notes for details or our website at allatonce.us. Sarah and I also want to recognize the All at Once team who works tirelessly alongside us. Robin Boren is our marketing director. Molly Bays is our social media manager. Taylor Diggs, our intern. And Maddie Reyna, who designed all of our podcast logos. A special thanks goes out to Alita Caldwell, owner of Funky Monkey, a boutique and shop in our hometown. There are two more people I have to shout out before you stop listening to this episode, and that is Larry's Designs and Friendswood. And lastly, and probably one of the coolest people that I need to talk about is Kate Short. She wrote the music you hear in response to season one. Check out her hit single, 2 a.m., wherever you listen to your music. Thanks for listening. God, can you show me how to grow?